0: I'm Printer, and this is The Motivated Classroom. Bonjour, hola, guten tag, hello and falte to The Motivated Classroom podcast. Thank you so much to everyone for joining me. This is episode number 68, believe it or not, and I am now talking about evidence-informed teaching and evidence-informed learning and essentially becoming an evidence-informed school. So that is the focus of today's episode. Now, for these few episodes, last week's episode when I spoke to Darren Leslie from Becoming Educated, it's been such a huge response to that episode. Lots of people saying I need to do more podcast collaboration, so I will look at that. But well, lots of people saying that they really enjoyed listening to talking about education as a whole and in general and going away maybe from the nitty gritty of the language classroom that we often focus on. And while that is really the point of this podcast is to talk about that nitty gritty, the practical classroom approaches, the zero prep strategies a lot of people do appreciate us talking about how we can become better at teaching and learning in terms of professional development. So I've got a little bit more to say on that today. And then next week, I've got a fantastic interview to follow up on this with the wonderful Jade Pierce about becoming an evidence-informed school. So I wanted to share a bit about our journey first here in the school I work at, the International School of Lausanne. And a lot of that actually came from Jade and her work. But of course, this is the Motivated Classroom podcast. So of course, we need to start with our little bit of Irish. Now, today, the word is... Is newer. Now, newer means wane when you're talking about something like. When I was speaking, when I was about to go there, uh, what were you doing when he said that? That is the word newer in Irish, like newer, vime you conch, when I was talking. But when we want to ask the question word when, like when is the game, we use the word con, which is kind of like con in French or cuando in Spanish. Con, it is in Irish but with a C. But today I wanted to share the word newer. So newer means when, when you're relating to something like when I was speaking or when I was at the match talking about an event, we use newer. So there you go. Now again, just to remind everybody for the motivated classroom that yes, this is all about motivation and language learning, this podcast and the fact that you are here listening to this right now means that you are engaged in professional development. You are trying to improve your practice. You're listening to an educational podcast. You're listening to me talk about language learning and teaching and motivation and engaging with it. So you are on that first step. Now a lot of it when we talk about professional development and continuous professional development comes back to, but how do we reach all those other teachers who maybe don't have the time to listen to an educational podcast or maybe they're just not interested in it or they don't really want to learn anymore or read anymore. They're happy with their practice. Well, in education, sometimes we can become overburdened with trying to continuously improve and be better and be better than last year. And that can be very tiring. However, I am a big advocate and believer in coming from an evidence base and being evidence informed. Because many of the practices that we use or have used or were taught when we were students and children in classes do not come from an evidence base. They just come from deeply held beliefs that we think might be right. And I was taught that way. So I'm going to do it like that. It worked for me. So I'm going to do it like that. And remember, we spoke about this with Dr. Ed Stevens about unpacking our professional identity and unpacking some of those beliefs that we have. And he used the phrase unbecoming. So some of those professional decisions that we make and what happens day to day in our classrooms sometimes comes from the way we were taught. But there's no evidence base to that. And a lot of the times these are just myths, actually, that don't help the learning. And in many cases, they create more work for us as teachers. We have more things to do. It increases our workload and makes life more difficult. But we don't know about the other options or We haven't read around them and we need someone to talk to us about them. So becoming an evidence informed school is a journey for each school. And the school I'm in made a conscious decision to go down this route. They really wanted to become a more evidence informed school. And hence why I absolutely love working here. I'm really glad that we are not just hoping this strategy will work, but we're looking at our best bets in education. Of course, education, teaching is a craft. It is built up over time. It's very contextualised. However, If we're going to do something, doesn't it not make more sense to try and do that thing where there's lots of evidence and research there to show that it has a very good chance of being effective or helping the learning rather than just hoping, well, I'll try this thing out and maybe it'll work. So that's where evidence informed teaching comes from, that we're trying to come at things from a way that things have been studied and read about, people have looked into and we've found now that in many circumstances, these things are effective. So now I'm going to try and adapt that to my style and help it to work in my context. So lots of people have got in touch and asked me to explain about how it works here at our school. You've got in touch to say we would also like to become a more evidence informed school. We'd like to look at more research, but one, we're not sure how on earth to start. And two, where do you get the time? How do you do this? So my school made a conscious decision that this was a big, important part of what we were going to do. And in fact, it's one of the five main objectives in our strategic plan. And I'm reading from it here, research and evidence based practice focusing on the quality of teaching. We know from the research and from all of the evidence out there, and I can say the words we know, it's pretty much a fact at this stage, that the quality of teaching and the teaching strategies and the teacher... Above all else are the things that make the biggest difference in education, in learning outcomes, in motivation, engagement, in well-being, not the facilities, not the apps, not the different things we're using, not the computer programs, but the actual teaching and the teacher and the strategies are what make the difference. And we know that from what students remember, from what students tell us and from what we see over and over in the research. So our school made a conscious decision to go down this route and say we're going to focus on the quality of teaching because we know that has the biggest impact And for that reason, we're going to create a post which is 20 percent of a full time role, which will be essentially a teaching and learning research lead or what it's called here is a leader of pedagogical innovation and luckily and thankfully the school chose me out of the candidates so I'm absolutely delighted to be in that role I've been doing it now for about six or seven months and absolutely loving it I'm thriving in it I'm having such wonderful conversations with colleagues about research and evidence-informed practices and retrieval practice and memory and cognitive load and all of these conversations have now opened up and it's, it's fantastic now I'm not going to say it's all going to change in six months it's going to take a lot longer than that and a lot of the things I learned about this I took from Jade Peer and from other leaders of teaching and learning and research leads like Darren Leslie who's on last week and they in some cases in these schools have been on this road for six or seven years and they're still figuring things out so we know one of the most important things is not to try and fix everything every school will have its little issues or nuances or things we want to get better at we'll always have these little problems that we want some solutions for but rather than try and go and do everything focus on one or two key aspects that's the first main important thing So why did ISL, International School of Lausanne, decide to go down this route? Why do they think this is important enough to allocate 20% of a full time teaching position to? So taking away 20% of what my job was up until now and replacing it with this, they found out this was important enough to do this. Well, why? Well, first and foremost, as I've said, number one, the quality of teaching. This has the largest impact on learning outcomes. This is repeated over and over and over again in so many studies. And actually, I remember very clearly the first week of my doctorate in Bath. And we would do these intense teaching weeks is what they were called. And myself, my friend Jason, we were actually at the back of this room in these doing these intense teaching weeks and was our first unit. So in my doctorate, you did four units that were one week of intense teaching each where you go to Bath, where I was the University of Bath, and then you have nine months to ride up a 10,000 word research paper on that topic. And then you do four of those. And if you pass all of those, you go on to the dissertation or the thesis stage. So this was us on our first week of these intense teaching weeks. It's nine to six every day of like lessons talking about educational policy and philosophy and all sorts of stuff. And we were definitely right on the edge, if not outside of our comfort zones. I was struggling to keep up with the conversation, didn't know a lot of the words. We were down the back of the room Googling stuff constantly. And I remember one of the things that stuck with me in that week was somebody saying after all these presentations from all these different lecturers and researchers and they just kept telling us that it comes down to the teacher. It comes down to the teacher, the approaches they use. It's the, teacher, it's the teacher, it's the teacher, it's the teacher. And someone put up their hand and said, well, if we know this is always coming back to the teacher and the strategies they use, why bother researching anything else? Why are we looking at all this other stuff? Why not just focus our research on the teacher? And it kind of stumped the lecturer and he went, yeah that's that's a good good point actually so that really stuck with me And of course, as the week went on, we become a little bit better at getting involved in conversations. We knew some of the big words. And of course, then when Jason and I came back a year later or two years later and we were in our second or third or fourth unit and the new people were on their first unit, they were the ones coming to us at lunch breaks and going, oh, my gosh, I'm so lost. What was that first part about? I don't get it at all. What is this word? Was this when we say it's okay, explain to them, we could now get involved in the conversations and that's learning, right? That's how we take it forward. So number one is that quality of teaching. We know that this has a huge impact on learning outcomes. And number two is that evidence informed continuous professional development has the largest impact on teacher quality. So if we want great teaching, well, we need to have evidence informed CPD, continuous professional development. The third reason why we wanted to go down this route is we did want to dispel any learning myths that have no basis in evidence. So maybe some of our teachers are involved without knowing it in some strategies or classroom practices that have very little basis in evidence. And I'm sure I was 100% definitely doing some stuff at the beginning of my teaching career that I would never do now. Like, for example, when I'm with novice beginner learners, at the beginning, I was taught that, oh, you need to let them figure out the rule themselves and they should discover it themselves. And I'd have them doing all these crazy group works and discovery and inquiry stuff when they were total, not total beginners, but real novices and obviously they were completely lost. They were trying to do this in French or Spanish or German and trying to figure things out and like didn't know what was going on. And I was I'll just work through the frustration. It'll be fine. But we know now from so much research that actually inquiry based and looking into things yourselves and problem solving in that way is much more efficient and works better once you already have a decent background, once you're kind of an expert or a, a high intermediate, we would say in language terms. But with beginners, they need to just know what it is and tell them the answers and give it to them right at the start with lots of comprehensible inputs, make it really basic and understandable so they can develop that system and then become problem solvers and inquiry based. And I used to do that and think that that was great teaching. And of course, now I know that really it's much better just to be simple and straightforward and clear and use lots of direct instruction with beginners and do more inquiry problem solving once they have a good level established. And the final point we really went down this road for was to reduce teacher workload at the end of the day that is what we were trying to do we were trying to make sure we came up with ways that would be the most efficient and effective ways of helping our students so that it might reduce workload for us it might reduce us getting involved in practices that maybe have very little evidence so why are we spending all our time with them like a great example is large long written feedback the evidence would suggest It is completely pointless. Students do not engage with it. They don't get very much from it. The very tiny amount of students who do get something from it are those high level A students, the ones who are going to do brilliantly anyway. The ones you really want to engage with that feedback are not getting anything from you writing out a whole page of comments or a big long paragraph. They engage with it for 10 seconds and it's it's done. We need different ways to do our feedback and that can reduce teacher workload immediately because we're coming from an evidence base. Now, before I talk about how we're doing this in my school, I want to talk a little bit about that why and that evidence base. So just to briefly touch on some of the things in the research, and there's so much of it out there. But basically, if you look at, for example, the Education Development Trust, their big report in 2020, like they talk about supporting teachers and by reducing their workload and they had this thing called reducing this uh, workload through the school workload reduction toolkit. And what they found was by actively implementing ways to reduce teacher workload, such as the ideas we have in our school for creating time for evidence-based strategies, this has a positive effect not only on improved learning outcomes for students, but also on teacher well-being. And when teacher well-being was better and they have more time to think and to plan and their workload is reduced, well, of course, the learning is better for students. And related to this, the Education Policy Institute, also in 2020, in their big evidence review, they found that CPD or Continuous Professional Development, that makes allowances for workload are actually much more likely to be more effective. So when you bring in this evidence informed approach or you're trying to get teachers to be involved with research, you need to carve out and allocate specific time. You don't just tack it on and say, yeah, I just want you to go away and read this in your spare time, because we know teachers don't have spare time. So it's reducing the workload to help it by carving out that time specifically. And they also found that high quality ongoing CPD involving collaboration, engaging research, has a significant effect on pupils' learning outcomes. There's also, of course, the report by the Teacher Development Trust in 2015, and that was all about developing great teaching. And they looked at lessons from a load of international reviews into effective professional development. And they also found that CPD is most effective when you give teachers autonomy, some choice, some direction, some ownership and the time and opportunities to collaborate. So you can see that lots of the evidence is pointing us in the same direction, that if we give teachers autonomy, choice, self-direction, ownership, time to do it and engage with it, It reduces their workload. They feel better about it. Their well-being is better and now they can implement some of these strategies that they're learning about. And actually, the National Foundation for Education Research, I think it's called, uh, or education. No, it's the National Foundation for Educational Research. That's it. In 2020, they looked at teacher autonomy, actually, and how it relates to job satisfaction and retention. And of course, No major surprise here. I bang on about autonomy all the time in our classrooms. It's the same for us. The importance of teachers own autonomy over their own CPD journey. So their journey of professional development was hugely important. Being able to have some kind of ownership or choice or thinking about what that teacher is doing and making sure you're not saying, well, we think this is important, so you must do it. That's you telling people that's being that's coercion and pressure, which we know is not autonomy and it's not autonomy supportive and what they write actually in this report is we find that teacher autonomy is strongly related to the extent to which teachers regard their workload as manageable although fewer than half of teachers at all autonomy levels say their workload is manageable nearly half of them with the highest autonomy report having a manageable workload compared to less than one in five of those with the lowest autonomy autonomy also correlates with teachers satisfaction with their amount of leisure time so To sum that up, if we can give teachers autonomy over their own CPD journey and what it looks like, this helps them to feel like they have less of a workload because it doesn't feel like it's been forced on them and then they can engage with this and now they will feel a better balance and they will then be able to put these things into place. Now, of course, this importance of autonomy ties very closely to the studies by John Marshall Reeve and Tune in 2021 about autonomy, supportive teaching. So they talk about its malleability, its benefits and how it can improve educational practice. And it ties almost directly with everything to do with the teachers. The teachers and the students very similar when they have more autonomy, more choice, more self-direction, more ownership over what they're doing, less pressure, less coercion then they feel much more motivated, engaged, and it's going to have more longer learning positive outcomes at the end of the day. So they will want to become more involved in that CPD journey when you give them that autonomy and when they have some control over it and it's not being tacked on as something extra that they must do, but giving them the choice over it was really, really important. And actually, I remember when I presented this to all of our staff at the beginning of the year, so I'm going to tell you about our plan and how we actually work it here. But essentially, I knew it was important. The teachers needed to have choice in either signing up or being part of one of these pedagogical research reading groups or not, that I didn't want to force them to do it if they didn't want to, if they felt like they were too busy or it simply didn't fit. And I knew I needed to carve out specific time not add something on. And when I presented all this and I spoke about the importance, like one teacher actually said to me, but this is so important that we're all reading around this stuff and, and motivation and engagement and behaviour and universal design for learning. These are some of our goals, you know, that we were looking at. And then, of course, this this is so important. Like, everyone should just do this. You should tell everyone they just must do this. Like, why are we giving people the choice over this? It's too important. And, you know, I can completely see where he's coming from. But at the same time, then that's me ignoring all of the evidence about autonomy. So I can't really stand up and talk about being evidence informed and then ignore all the evidence on autonomy and actually saying, well, no, I'm going to allow people the choice and it's up to them if they want to do it and get involved. And of course... The vast majority of teachers really wanted to get involved in these projects. And some simply life is just too busy uh, to get involved in it this year. And they decided I'm going to do it next year. That's fine. That's the whole point of being autonomy supportive and allowing people direction and ownership is to say, I'm not forcing this. Here's all the benefits from it. If you feel like you can get involved, wonderful. And if not, that's OK. We can do it another time. But by kind of a, a majority of people getting involved then those people who thought I don't have time for this this year, they're overhearing those conversations, listening to them and thinking, actually, maybe I do want to get involved in those reading groups. It sounds fascinating. So that was, you know, it was an interesting comment. But, you know, we do have to listen to the research too as leaders in schools. If we're trying to tell people to do things that way, you know, the the classic example is, you know, trying to force people to do a course on meditating and mindfulness and being relaxed and taking time out. And you say, no, you must attend this four hour online you know workshop that's all about you taking time for yourself and it's like well, what like that's comp- you're not listening to the evidence yourself if you're telling me you're forcing me to go online for four hours and do a meditation course that I, I don't really want to do I prefer to just have the four hours to spend time with my family or do my own thing So, you know, it's about those things like listening carefully to the research, you know, that's that's really important. One of the other studies I looked at in preparation for this job was The Open Door, it's called. It's how to be a research sensitive school published in April 2021 by the Institute for Effective Education. And they've got a really nice one page executive summary if you don't have time to read the whole thing. Essentially, what they're saying is by creating time and space for teacher and pedagogy focused CPD, Is absolutely key and vital. So we need time and we need space in the timetable, not just tacked on along the side so that our CPD that we're doing is focused on pedagogy and teaching. Now, they also say that the best professional development is ongoing over at least a whole year or more, but it needs to be allocated in the timetable for it to be effective, that we can't just say, yeah, we want you all to attend this meeting at five o'clock on a Thursday. That's not going to happen. People are going to immediately have their backs up to that. They need their own time and space. But if we can allocate other time for that. So if we normally have a meeting about whatever it may be, a new database or system and say, no, do you know what? That can be in an email. We're going to use that time for pedagogy and reading about research. That's when we can make it effective. And so when professional development around teaching and learning Is given priority, or when it's at least seen to have priority over other things in the school, then staff are actually much more likely to engage in real, meaningful, reflective practice on their teaching. So when they see that actually in this school, teaching and learning are really important, like we've quite a lot of meetings about it. Meeting times are allocated for that; they're blocked off. They know it's important, and they get it, and and they know that there's time there for them to do it. And also, this this study found that the school itself needs to provide the time and the space for teachers to collaborate on these new initiatives and research-based practice, that it should be some discussions and collaborations going on about our own teaching because we're all engaged in it every day. We're teaching, we're in the classroom all the time and to talk it out with colleagues can be hugely important. Okay, so after all that, what does it actually look like here at the International School of Lausanne and what does it look like in other schools as well? Well, again, taking a big leaf out of Jade Pierce's book and, you know, I'm really excited for you all to listen to her next week. I learned a lot from what she said and what she brought in in her school and so we came at it from a similar approach in that we have three core teaching and learning priorities. Now for us the timing was really good because we had just been through an accreditation and self-study that we have to do every five years. It's quite a big undertaking a big project everyone in the school is involved in different groups you know whether that's safeguarding and child protection or if it's to do with sports or the after-school program and I was involved in the teaching and learning group the biggest group by far of course because we're school And it had teachers. I was leading it with a teacher from the primary, and we had a big, big group of teachers all across the school. And it also included some parents and some students. And you essentially look at what you're currently doing in all these different ways and how good it is, and you mark yourselves. And at the very end of a big, long process over a year, you come up with some action points and we had kind of 10 clear action points to improve on in our school. And then we voted on those and we ended up with three core teaching and learning priorities and they were going to be our focus. So that's how we got to those priorities. So that was great. that We knew we were looking at it kind of like what are the things we want to improve on and let's look at some solutions. So our three things were number one, we wanted students to be able to think a bit more about the process of learning and not look at it solely from a focus of grades. So we wanted to really talk about intrinsic motivation. How do we motivate students intrinsically rather than just using grades or then thinking about grades all the time? So that was a focus on motivation, which, of course, I was delighted about and that fit very nicely. The second thing was about ensuring we were using strategies that support all of the learners in the room. So we're not talking just about those high flyers and we're not talking about just supporting those who are struggling, but everybody. And so this was what we call the universal design for learning. Well, I shouldn't say we call it. That's the name of the approach universal design for learning. We wanted to look into this and essentially it's about differentiation, direct instruction, inquiry based instruction, reading around that and coming up with an evidence informed approach to that. And then our final thing was about having a variety of techniques and strategies we could use that would help the students with their memory and retention. So this was retrieval practice and memory and cognitive loads. There were our three areas, motivation, universal design for learning, retrieval practice and retention and memory all came together. And so what we did from there is we set up three groups representing one of these uh, priorities and you could sign up to be part of one of these reading groups. So, you make the decision, okay, I'm really interested in motivation. I'm going to sign up and be in that reading group. Now, every six weeks, there's a staff meeting that is allocated just to that reading. So, you are given a paper and you have six weeks to read it, which typically take about an hour to two hours of reading of your time. Now, that is done in your own time, but you accrue that and get that back later on a professional development day towards the end of the year. So, if you accrue your five to 10 hours of reading and discussion time, Well, then on the professional development day, then you are free to do what you need to do. You don't need to attend those sessions because you've already done five to 10 hours of work on that. And teachers really loved that autonomy and choice. They could say, well, I'm really interested in differentiation and universal design for learning. So I'm going to read around that. Then every six weeks we meet up, we discuss, we have probing questions, we talk about it. And then the very next meeting after that is allocated by departments to discussing how we apply what we've just read to our own specific subject area. This is something we're going to look at even more in the future, but a lot of the research shows that continuous professional development and reading and research becomes most valuable when it is at subject level. It is to do with your own subject. So we wanted to make sure that the next department meeting after this all staff meeting. So you do your reading, And then you come in, there's an all staff meeting, you go to your groups, you discuss the paper, all these different questions, you talk about how it applies. The next department meeting you have is blocked off by your department head and where you discuss applying that to your subject areas. So the maths teachers are talking about how cognitive load and retrieval practice and motivation applies into their group. We read about this, we read about this, here's how it applies to maths. And you do the same then in all the other departments. And then finally, if we were going to have anyone come in and speak to us about different things to do with pedagogy, and that that is really valuable. Having outside experts come in and talk and train us is, of course, very valuable. We're not just going to get rid of that, but we wanted to make sure that they were coming from an evidence informed practice base so that they were coming in with evidence and an evidence informed approach. And that it was aligned to our priorities. So that was essentially how we were going to do this. Now, we're about halfway through the first year of this. We've met three times so far. We've two more to go. And I can say that it's it's been great, actually. It's been fantastic. There's been so many as I, I like to call them, coffee machine chats, you know, people coming up and talking to me about something they read or tried out. One of the groups is reading Kate Jones's book on retrieval practice. So they started by looking at the research around memory and cognitive load and retrieval practice and now are getting into the practical strategies. And so this is all, the idea is that year one of this programme is very much focused on the reading, the pedagogy, the research, really thinking about it, understanding things from a more evidence base. And next year, really starting to look more at the practice. And then the third year we go back to reading again. And then, of course, practice the following year. So it's like evidence based one year all about reading and research and the following year, really about implementation into practice. Now, of course, some people are asking, well, what about those teachers who didn't sign up for one of those reading groups? What happens there? Well, What they do is during the staff meeting of every five or six weeks, now they haven't done the reading, but when they have that meeting every five or six weeks, one of the members of the educational leadership team or myself, we go and present to them on one of those areas and we kind of talk about the research and bring it all together into a short little disseminated one hour. And those teachers then, when we do have our professional development day later in the year, they will be there and working on a lot of these areas while the others who've been accrued the time are free to do what they need to do. So I think teachers have really appreciated of this approach because there's lots of autonomy lots of choice that you can decide where is your interest lie what you want to do there's some reading then we talk and discuss then we try and apply it to practice now this is just the first year there's loads more to go and we want in our years two and three also to have little groups set up who are doing their own research action based research we want to turn this school into a little bit of a educational research hub but we know that that's in the future that's coming down the line right now we're doing our reading and then gradually hopefully some people will during that time instead of reading around paper Papers, they'll actually be doing their own research in our context and trying to get things published or writing it up or whatever that may be you're inviting people to come in and look at what they're doing so we know that the journey still has a long way to go but this is how we started it off And the final piece of the puzzle that I haven't mentioned yet, but part of my role is that once every six to eight weeks, I also send out a research newsletter. That's part of my role. And it's very short. It's just like 10 kind of Google slides. And I talk through it like a screencast. You can either look at it yourself, just click through the slides, or you can listen to my 15 minute presentation if you prefer. And basically, it's me talking about three studies that I've read that are related to our three core priorities but that are not part of the reading that we're doing this year. So they're kind of related studies, but not part of the core reading of each of those groups. And people have really appreciated that too. People have replied and said, oh, this is really interesting, didn't know about this. And it's just getting those conversations going about teaching, pedagogy and research. So there you go. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to this episode. I know it's a little bit different. We're not talking so much about language learning and language research and language teaching, but really this is about the bigger picture of your professional development, which you're engaged in right now by listening to this. So gore mila Thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. And a huge thank you, of course, to everybody who has signed up for my workshop, the Comprehensible Input Workshop running online teaching with compelling, comprehensible inputs. It's three Saturdays, one and a half hours each Saturday over three weeks. And it's completely full and booked out. So, you know, a huge thank you. There will be more of those coming up throughout the year. Just get in touch and let me know. And of course, I must say a massive thank you again to all of you who are patrons of the podcast. Honestly, episode 68 never ever thought it would go past episode 28 or even episode 18 and that is hugely thank you to your support and finding me on the buy me a coffee page or becoming a patron so honestly genuinely thank you for all those crisps and coffees you got me over the year now remember we need to finish with our irish of course extremely important that we always finish with our irish and today the word is newer meaning when, as in when i was doing that thing and with that i'd like to say gore Míle maith agaibh agus <laughs> a The Motivated Classroom podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter, and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer, The Motivated Classroom. Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow The Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.